What most people do is, is they select and choose goals based on how they view their current personality rather than choosing goals based on the personality they want to have. So your goals should not be based on your personality. Your personality should actually become based upon your chosen goals. But people assume an identity and then they use that identity to create a limiting future. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders. Rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Did you know that you can bring ideas from Mind Valley into your business? If you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhumans, you can discover Mind Valley's business offerings so you can bring personal and professional growth to the entire company. If you are the owner of a company, you know that if you invest in your employees' engagement, happiness, and learning, it'll help the bottom line and impact the business positively. And if you wish your company was bringing these kinds of products from Mind Valley Quests, Mind Valley Mentoring, and all the learnings to be a complete high-performance individual in every area of your life, then you definitely want to go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhumans to see how we can get started with working with you. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. I'm super excited to bring a psychologist who's going to break some of the beliefs that you might have around personality types. Have you ever done one of those surveys online? Did you feel like you found the exact description of who you are, how you fit into that type? Well, maybe it's not as relevant as you think. And we're going to see what challenging thoughts come from the author of the upcoming book, which is Your Personality Isn't Permanent. And Benjamin Hardy has been one of the most viewed posts on Medium. The number one writer in the world on Medium.com has written several books. And this upcoming one about this personality isn't permanent is really going to challenge our beliefs here and see what is the way that we should look at personality and how we can actually be in control and modify it so that it can actually become the person that we want to become and not necessarily be pegged by some tests we did that start defining who we are. And so with that, Dr. Benjamin Hardy, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, brother. Great to be with you. It's gonna be fun. Now, Ben, I love the fact that you know, a lot of people look at these personality types. I mean, even at Mind Valley, I have some of my friends. That, and okay, I'll be honest. I'm very spiritual as well. I'll sometimes look at astrology. I'm an Aries, and then I'll look at anything that describes it, and I'll say, "This is exciting. This is me." Or I went through the Myers Briggs. I've done the 16 personalities. I'm an ENTP, and I'm like, "Oh my God, that's so me." Yet you're coming here, and you're telling us that maybe this isn't as factual as we assume it to be. So let's start there. What's going on? It's funny, given that Mind Valley is such a corporation of self-transformation, that people would be so locked into such fixed mindsets. I mean, that's essentially what personality tests create, is a fixed mindset. There's so many places to start. Where would you like to start? Well, first, you just challenged the fact that, hey, personality types actually make you a fixed mindset. I thought by being more clear on my personality type, I would actually have more clues as to how to grow within that personality type. So let's start there. Yeah. So... What you've just said is kind of a, a common view of people. So very common views of people are that we all have an innate personality, which is the real us. It's our true and authentic self. And our job as people is to discover our true self so that then we can create the life or build the life around our personality that suits us most. It's very much like I've got to find what kind of peg I am so that I can find the right holes to jump through in life. 
And if I don't find my true self, then everything in life is going to be painful. So basically, life becomes about discovering and searching for yourself rather than proactively designing and creating yourself. And one of the reasons why this view is so common is because psychologists, you know, generally a lot of the theories in psychology place a lot of emphasis on the past. And so the job is to discover what are the reasons you became the person you are, who really are you? And so you're just on this search for finding yourself rather than actually becoming proactive at thinking, who do you want to be? So there's a lot of research now in psychology talking about your future self. You know, you can dig into lots of TED Talks, but also a lot of research about how your future, your current, and your former selves are all very different people. So just think about yourself as an example. Where were you 10 years ago? Who were you 10 years ago? As a person, like what were you interested in? What, who were your friends? What were you focused on? What was your belief system? Like, what did you value? And even what were your interests? My guess is if you really thought about it, you were a, quite a different person than you are right now. There's a good quote from Elaine Day Button. He's a British philosopher. And he says, if you're not embarrassed by who you were 12 months ago, you didn't learn very much. Have you heard this one? I have not, but it's so good because yeah, yeah, if, you're not, if, you, if you're growing, then you should be looking back in hindsight going like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. I mean, especially if you're pursuing big goals or if you're actively going through growth and development, then you're going to conflict with your former self to some degree. Not that you should harshly judge your former self. You should empathize or see why they were the way they were. I go through a lot of stories of people with extreme change and none of them have anger or bitter feelings towards their former self. They just have empathy and understanding and they don't identify with their former self. But with the future self, there's a lot of research talking about how you should actually view your future self as a different person than you. They would have different views, different perspectives, different circumstances, different habits. And it's very good for decision making to make decisions based on what your future self would do rather than what you would do. But there's a, basically a concept that it's called the end of history illusion, but it's the idea that just yourself as an example, if you look back on the last 10 years, you can see a lot of change. But what most people do is, is even if they can see a lot of change in their past, they very much underplay what's possible as far as change in their future. They assume that who they are right now is generally the full version of them. One of the quotes from Dr. Daniel Gilbert, he's a Harvard psychologist. He says, human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. So like we think that who we are is who we are, that limits us from seeing the future because it's really a lot easier to remember the past than to imagine the future. And there's a lot of reasons why imagination gets kind of crushed. Um, trauma is one, you know, just the limiting social environment. Those are some of the research. We haven't actually even gone into the personality tests and stuff like that, but that's kind of some background as well. Well, I love that because I can even think of a quote and doctor, you can correct me if this is wrong. But then I've also heard that term where it's like, you know, if you look at how our cells regenerate and like over a 10 year span, not even, not even the same biologically, right? So you've completely biologically changed. So it's not hard to imagine that you can actually completely change your environment, how you operate in this world. And yeah, I've had those moments. It's funny you mentioned about looking at the bass and being embarrassed because, you know, we have these handy little tools now that are available, such as Facebook that show you posts that you might have had 10 years ago. And that's when you read. And I've had these moments I read, I'm like, oh my God, I need to delete this. What is this? Who was I? But I love the fact that you brought in this understanding as opposed to criticize, which is like, hmm, look at me go when I was then. And it's like, wow, I've grown so much. This is amazing to witness the journey. But one thing I wanted to continue on is the fact that you talked about how we spend a lot more time in our past because it's easier to remember. So are you saying that if we make a shift of putting much more energy into imagining our future, you start getting pulled as opposed to dragged down? It's a lot crazier than that, actually. <laughs> so first off, yes, imagination. There's a quote from Albert Einstein. He says, imagination is more important than knowledge. 
one of the reasons why people's personality becomes, let's just say, repetitive is because they're not spending very much time imagining the future. And a lot of reasons for that is, is because imagination requires what's called psychological flexibility. You got to be psychologically flexible to really imagine a future and flexibility and confidence go hand in hand. So the more confidence you can build, the more you can see varied versions of yourself in the future and actively believe and strive for that. One of the reasons why personality gets repetitive and why imagination is limited for a lot of people is because of trauma, literally. Like, so there's a lot of research on how trauma, and it could be big or small things. For example, if you're in a math class and your teacher tells you you're not very good at math, you're probably gonna believe that. <laughs> and so as a result, you're not gonna have very much imagination or belief towards doing anything in math and you're gonna steer towards something else. So trauma is just any experience that you internalize and then isolate and then you avoid dealing with. And so that happens in big and small degrees to all of us. And rather than imagining and becoming who we wanna be, we ultimately consign to who we think we are and we pursue whatever is most comfortable or easy. And so personality for most people, it's based on so many other factors. So it could be trauma. It could be just the narrative that they form in their head. A lot of it has to do with wherever they're at subconsciously. And then obviously their environment is huge. And if you change any of those four factors, personality will change. <laughs> like personality changes abundantly when you understand kind of the hinges that swing it. And so People just assume they are the way they are and their personality becomes persistent. But if you actually begin imagining a future and pursuing that, and yes, it's an emotional journey. It's very difficult emotionally to deal with former traumas. But what's really crazy is that not only is the future the thing that actually guides you, your goals are actually the thing that shape your identity. So think about yourself right now, whatever it is you're pursuing, people in their cars listening to this, what is it you're pursuing? What is it that you're focusing on and striving for? That thing actually right now is informing how you see yourself. So for me, for example, I'm an author, but I'm, I'm mostly focused on getting this book out there. And so that's shaping how I'm seeing myself. And few people take the time to truly imagine that future self and what their goals could be. There's one other thing about this, though, that I wanted to mention that's really interesting and really important. And that's the idea that the past actually is flexible. The past changes all the time. So memory is not like some cabinet memory is very fluid. It's just like history. Like the further and further you go from an event and depending on who's telling the story, the, you're going to get a different story. Like if we're talking about World War II from the perspective of Americans now versus Americans like 20 years ago, you'd actually get a different story. If you're hearing about World War II from the perspective of the Germans or the Japanese or the English, you get totally different stories. And so the past is a perspective. And so as you evolve as a person, your view of your own past changes. It's kind of like the quote, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. We have a very subjective perspective, but we also see our own past not as it is, but as we are. And so as you grow and develop and evolve as a person, your memory changes, your memory of former events, and it should change. For example, if something was highly traumatic, something that was holding you back, if you still view the past the same way, what it means is that you have not yet learned from the experience and you're still viewing a former experience as your former self, not as your current self. As you evolve as a person, you should continuously view the past as something that's information, not emotion. You know, if it's still emotional, then you're still kind of being owned by it. And so the past is something that we actually should be in complete narration of. The past is fictional and also the future. And as you learn to narrate these things in healthy ways and dealing with them, you can use them to leverage wherever you're trying to go. Wow. Ben, I feel like everybody listening here, including myself, I'm listening. I'm like, this man is dropping so many knowledge bombs on psychology here. I feel like I just had a session and I'm like, man, this is so true. So I love the fact that you just mentioned how, yeah, our memories are flexible and the past can be changed because we basically are the one that creates it in the moment of now, right? 
Well, I'll give an example of myself. So I grew up in a tough environment. My parents have divorced when I was 11 years old. The divorce was so painful for my father that it led him to being a drug addict. And he literally became an extreme drug addict. Meth, like literally at my father's house, drug paraphernalia everywhere. And very unexpected for me, we grew up slightly, you know, quite a religious family. And all of a sudden, there's just drugs everywhere. And even drug addicts. And it got to the point where we had to leave. And one of the things that we do as people is when stuff's happening to us, we try to understand it. Our identity is formed in stories and stories are based on cause and effect. And so for me, when I was like 14, 15, 16 years old, I was like, why is this happening to me? And we could do that in any situation. If you're sitting in traffic, why is this happening to me? You come up with a cause. And for me, all of my cause was my father. He was the one causing this to happen to me. And then that led me to seeing myself a certain way and your identity shapes how you view the world because we see the world not as it is, but we see it as we are. So your identity is how you view the world. And so I blamed my father for a long time for all of this. Well, if you fast forward, I decided at age 20 to go serve a church mission because I just needed to get out of my life and out of my environment. It was very toxic. And over that process of time, I began to kind of forgive my father. And so my story then became, well, I forgive him for what he's done. Fast forward further, I get a PhD in psychology, learn a lot about all sorts of crazy stuff. But also my wife and I adopt three kids from the foster system. And you know, my father was adopted. And so I come to learn all of these aspects of what happens with kids that are adopted. And also fast forward a little bit, my father overcomes his drug addiction and he's become like a counselor and a supporter for people in their addictions. And so as time progresses, the context changes. And really memory is about context, not content. So the content of the memory didn't necessarily change. My father still was doing drugs, but the context of my perspective changes all the time. And when you change the context, you actually simultaneously change the content of the memory. And so, you know, the problem with personality tests, just as one example, and there's actually a lot of problems with personality tests, is that they completely ignore context. Like, let's just say you take the Enneagram or if you take the Myers-Briggs, you get a single score and you assume that that score is who you always are. But the truth is, is that your behavior and even your identity is shaped more by what's around you. You're going to be a different person in different situations. Like right now you're listening to me, you know, and we're both kind of chilling. But like if you were at a party or if you were in some environment that you were really excited about, you would show up a little differently. If you're on an airplane, you'd show up differently. If someone was at your house with a gun to your head, you'd show up differently. So context is really important. And personality tests ignore context 100%. Employers actually make employees suggestively, I don't think they can impose it, but they highly recommend employees to do personality tests in order to see how they best sort themselves within the system. But then at this time, when you're saying the context, let's say we're in the context of the workplace, would my personality necessarily need to evolve? Like, because we're discrediting the personality tests. And in my case, when I did them, it was a kind of a confirmation of the biases I already had about the personality that I thought that I had. I just went and confirmed it by doing a survey. You're the one who answered the survey. So it makes sense that the survey came back the way you saw yourself because you're the one who answered it. Got it. Am I now bringing that kind of attitude to different environments? If I was trying to just find this out in the workplace, what's going on here? Well, there's a lot of different things you're talking about. One is, is from the perspective of an employer, it would make sense why they would want a certain type of people because they're trying to create a culture and a tight-knit kind of encapsulated culture. So they're trying to find certain people to fit within that culture, which makes total sense. Cultures can become echo chambers, and often that's actually exactly what you want. But I myself would never want my future to be dependent on a personality test. And me as a person, I want to be in the situation where I can create my own situations, not based on how people think my personality is, but based on either a shared 
goal or because people know what I've done in the past. Like, for example, I'm writing a book right now with a guy named Dan Sullivan. He's the founder of Strategic Coach. Do you know Dan? Mm -hmm. We have a book coming out in October called Who Not How. And that collaboration has nothing to do with either of our personalities. <laughs> like the reason we're in collaboration with each other is because we both have a shared vision and because I love his work and he loves my work. Like there is no absolute no need for either of us to take a personality test in order for us to form this relationship. That means absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, I can see why employers would do it. It's actually quite lazy. It's the easiest way to just get a snapshot of someone from the perspective you're looking for. Every test is a different perspective. And so someone might say, well, I really like this perspective even though it's just like anything else. It's just a perspective. But someone might say, I like this perspective, and so I'm going to use this. And you get a snapshot of someone. What the research shows is that this is what's kind of really interesting. There's a lot of different studies on personality. Basically, what research is finding now is, is that personality is going to change over time regardless of intention. It's going to change over time. But there's research on specifically on personality tests. For example, let's just say there was two groups. There's two groups in a study. One group was administered the same personality test by the same administrator. One person gave a person a personality test. They filled it out a few weeks later, a month later, that same person gave them another personality test. And the two scores were pretty similar. The other group got a personality test and one person gave them the test. They filled it out. And then a month later, someone else gave them the test. And just by changing that situation a little bit, the two tests were almost not correlated. And so how you fill out a test has a lot to do with the situation. You filled out a test specifically about your job, because you were thinking about the job. If you had taken the test a few months earlier, but it was about something totally different, even the same test, you might have gotten different scores. Or even if you were in a different environment, there's a lot more to this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd love for you to even break down this thing you mentioned even before we got on the recording. And I think it's important for people to realize is we often think, or I think we've just been conditioned to assume that these personality tests are wired in psychology, but you mentioned a term called pop psychology, which actually is a key differentiation between what's going on that we're usually exposed to and what the truth is. Could you break that down for us? Yeah. Any of the tests that you can get that are based on types. So for example, Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, even DISC, like any test that breaks people into types is generally non-scientific. And the reason for that is, is because psychologists don't view people in types. Like that is a very surface level. It actually is borderline the same type of thinking as racism. Like breaking people into types ignores context, but it's also just not true. It leads to what's called mindlessness. So when you're mindless, you ignore the fact that in different situations you are different. So what these types of tests do is, is they give you a label. And then that label becomes how you view yourself. It becomes your identity. And your identity shapes your choices, your actions, your behaviors, and even the goals you pursue to some degree. And so it leads you to not noticing the time in which the label is not true. So Ellen Langer, she's a Harvard psychologist. She wrote an incredible book. I recommend actually both her books, Mindfulness and Counterclockwise. But one of the things she talks about, so mindfulness is the ability to recognize context, but also to recognize nuance and distinction, like changes within that context. Basically, what she's found a lot in research is, is that if you assume a label, let's just say I assume I'm depressed, I will believe that I'm always depressed, when in reality, that's not actually true. In psychology, we have what's called selective attention. We all see kind of tunnel vision. We see things a certain way, and we ignore almost everything else. And so if I believe I'm depressed, I'm going to believe I'm always depressed, and I'm going to miss and ignore all of the times I actually show up and I'm quite happy. 
not only does it change how you see the world selectively, it also changes your memories, it shapes your goals. And so when you assume one of these labels, it alters your worldview. And you actually miss all of the times that the label is not actually true. You know, for me, every time I do a test, it always comes out as saying that I'm extremely extroverted. Yet, I'm always like curious at times when I'm like, hey, I, and I don't know if this whole extroverted, introverted thing is even a thing. Cause sometimes I'm just like, hey, I just need to be by myself and I want to recharge. And then I start being in conflict because I'm like, hey, ain't I supposed to be an extrovert? Why am I not wanting to go socialize? <laughs> it's called you're a human <laughs> and that you need different <laughs> things and that in different situations, you're going to want different things. There is a framework for personality. It's called the big five factors. And one of them actually is extroversion, but these are more of a continuum. Basically, you're not an extrovert or an introvert. You obviously in certain situations would deploy extroversion or, or be drawn that way. But over time, all of those things change and they're based on context, situation, the role you're in, the phase of life you're in. And so personality is adjustable and there is no specific types. One thing that's really interesting about labels. So there's a really good essay. I believe it's called Keep Your Identity Small from Paul Graham. But he talks about the problem with overly infusing too much in your identity is, is that it becomes something you can't actually have a useful conversation for. Political party, for example, like if you really overly attach to a certain political party, you can't actually have a constructive, learnable conversation is all you do is defend your label. And that's usually what happens is that if you have a label, you, you seek to defend it rather than actually openly questioning or challenging it. And so one of the things he talks about is that labels make you dumber, which is from a mindfulness perspective, they actually do because they stop you from questioning them. They stop you from seeing when they're not true. And they stop you from pursuing imaginative and meaningful goals, imagining and seeing yourself in a different way. And so there are ways in which you can use labels smartly, intelligently. So just as an example, I don't know if you've heard of Jeff Goins. He's a writer. He's an interesting guy. He has a story about how like for years, he always wanted to be a professional writer, but he never actually wrote. And so one of his friends said, Jeff, like you need to stop thinking you're a writer and you just need to say you're a writer. You need to call yourself a writer. And so what he did is he said, okay, like I'm a writer. So he started calling himself that and he infused that into his identity. And then he worked through his identity because he saw himself as an identity. He labeled himself as a writer. He was very strategic. He then operated through that identity. And so that's where you use labels to support your goals. Whereas what we were talking about earlier is, is that most people, they choose goals to support their labels which is like the absolute dumbest thing you can do. It's really what most people do is, is what most people do is, is they select and choose goals based on how they view their current personality rather than choosing goals based on the personality they want to have. So your goals should not be based on your personality. Your personality should actually become based upon your chosen goals. But people assume an identity and then they use that identity to create a limiting future. One that they just assume is the true and authentic them which is really not the true and authentic them. It's just a version of themselves that they've adopted the belief system and then the worldview of. And so now they're just acting from that view. And, and so I wanted to just understand what the heck is this thing, personality, and where does it come from? And that's where then things like story and narrative, trauma being such a big one. The thing about most people is, is their personality is honestly more impacted by negative former events, which have led them down a certain path. And, and then obviously social environment. But you want to be very flexible with your identity. One last thought is just if your future self is different from your current self, then that means that you shouldn't overly value your current perspective. You shouldn't overly value your current identity. You shouldn't overly defend your current identity because hopefully if you're actively learning and evolving, 
your current self, I'm not going to say they need to be embarrassing to your future self, but your future self should fundamentally, hopefully, see the world better. Your future self should have more freedom, more flexibility. Your future self should have more ability <laughs> and better perspectives than your current self. And if that's the case, then you want to constantly be seeking and learning and striving towards a future self rather than overly owning how you currently see the world, rather than overly defending whatever it is you think happened to you. Beautiful. Ben, I love what you just shared so much. And it's funny because I actually had the exact same epiphany happen to me as a colleague writer that you mentioned, because I had that same thing. I had a goal on a list that says, I want to write a book one day. And it wasn't until I did a workshop. This was actually with the guys over at Scribe that do self-publishing. Love them. Scribe. Huge fans of Scribe. Tucker Max, by the way, actually edited Personality Isn't Permanent. There you go. So first thing I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to learn the outline. I'm going to learn how to do everything. But the first thing we did was say the first thing you need to do if you want to write a book is assume the identity that you are now an author. And for me, that changed everything. And now I'm actually writing the book. So super powerful. Identity, by the way, is more important than personality. Identity shapes personality. And I love the fact that the future self goal setting ideas, like I have to admit one thing that I did. We have a process at my Valley called Life Book, which is basically mapping out goals. I did it 10 years ago. Ah, oh, wow. You're one of the originals. For people listening who might not have done Lifebook, you basically break down the beliefs you have, the vision you have. But one aspect that's important is actually you start mapping out the purpose as to why you're chasing that. And I remember the first time that I did the Lifebook, my first version, I had to look at it a year after because I realized that all the goals that I had set was based on what I knew others expected me to do and what I would need to do so that I would satisfy what was the expectations of my personality, what I'm expected to be. You were showing up as you were expected to show up. Right. And then I realized like, oh my God, none of these make sense. And I'm trapping myself into this loop. And I was so happy that I was able to catch that by putting it down and then catching it. And now when I redid it, then I started being really clear on that big vision I wanted for myself. So would this be the proper prescription for people is that if I want to step out of just looking at personality tests and kind of reinforcing the behaviors that my personality is expected is really taking the time to build that vision of what is the greatest version of the grandest self I could ever have for myself in 10 years. And then start asking yourself, if I was this person, what would I advise myself to do now? Yeah, I mean, that's one way of looking at it 100%. Yeah. So you definitely want to have a vision or a purpose, like purpose trumps personality every day of the week. Purpose is so much more powerful. The problem with most people is that their personality gets in the way of their purpose. But if you have a big purpose, if you have a clear and powerful purpose, that purpose will and should transform your personality over time through the pursuit of it. Because if you have something you believe in, something that you want, something that you're striving for, generally, you're going to have to exercise courage, commitment, have emotional experiences, have what I would call peak experiences. And so, yeah, I mean, there's so many prescriptions throughout the book as far as upgrading your identity and your psychology and your subconscious. But really simply, you do want to be intentional. Being intentional and having courage are the things that lead to what are called peak experiences. And peak experiences are the experiences that reframe your view of the world. And they can and should happen regularly. Sadly, for most people, they're rare experiences because people are not intentionally pursuing a future self. They're kind of reliving their former lives or former selves and then defending who they formerly were. So yeah, genuinely just think, who would I want to be? It could be 10 years out. It could be three years out. And then what I would challenge people to do is to think about what is a keystone goal, like a, a single goal that would enable the actual unfolding of your future self. So just as an example, like when I decided I wanted to be a professional writer, this was during the first year. I actually, it was before the first year of my PhD program, but when I really decided that I was going to go for it, 
I decided I wanted to be a professional writer, someone who was making a living as a writer. And so my one goal, or you could call it the keystone goal that then shaped my process was that I wanted to find a way to get a six-figure book deal. That to me felt like a goal that if I achieved it, then I could be making a living as a writer. And it would, if that goal was true, would enable me to be the future self with the freedoms and the abilities, the schedule, the day that I wanted. So selecting a single goal that would then allow the unfolding of everything else you want. And also that goal then can shape the sub goals and also the process. And so that goal then allowed me to reverse engineer, well, how do you get a six figure book deal? And then I'd ask all the right people, you know, and get different perspectives. Oh, well, I need at least a hundred thousand email subscribers. Okay. Well, how do you get a hundred thousand email subscribers? Well, you got to start blogging. Oh, well, how do you write viral blog posts? Like, so the goal shapes the process and then your commitment to achieving that then opens it up. And again, the goal can really very much shape your identity and it shapes your behavior. And then over time, as you engage in that behavior, it becomes your personality. <laughs> like, so your purpose should actually be the thing that formulates and informs your personality. Would I be fair to add the fact that maybe I'm sitting here and I'm not like, you know, it's like, wow, purpose, so big. Like, It's chosen. It's chosen. It doesn't have to be that. I love what you're saying. You're going the right direction. Because is it going to stay? Like, I think a lot of people, it's like, oh my God, if I choose the purpose, like, let's say I say I want to be a writer and I need a six-figure book deal. But then you, you go down the path, you're starting breaking down. You're like, shit, that's not what I want. That's fine. <laughs> that's totally fine. Yeah. I think that purpose is, again, people think that purpose is discovered, just like they think personality is discovered. Purpose is chosen. Purpose is something that you consciously and actively choose. And the more confident you get as a person, the more you make decisions on your own, without waiting for life to come to you, without being reactive. And so you want to choose and define the purpose for yourself that makes most sense to your current self. What would be exciting in the future three to five years out? And that's what you pursue. But yeah, if you go down that path, it's like an experiment. You test it out. And if you don't love it, you can obviously adjust. You can set a new perspective. The purpose isn't inflexible. Again, a big problem, honestly, with how people view their past and their futures, it's very rigid. To me, that shows a huge lack of emotional development. The more emotionally evolved and the more emotional development you've gone through, the more psychologically flexible you are. And if you're flexible and if you're confident, then you can make decisions, you can pursue them, you can change your mind. You're not so rigid in how you view yourself and how you view the world and how you operate and how you even relate to others. But it is powerful, one just thought, to actually commit to something specific and to watch it happen. That's actually in a lot of ways how confidence is built. It could be built in small and simple ways, such as saying you're going to wake up early, going to the gym and like having a morning routine, like watching yourself accumulate small wins is actually how you build confidence. And so committing to a specific outcome, for example, it doesn't need to be a six-figure book deal for you, but committing to something specific and then actually creating that specific result, not overly obsessing about the process, but actually specifically focusing on the desired outcome and then figuring out how to create that allows you to watch yourself do things that you've never currently done before. And as you watch yourself do progressively different or harder things, that's how your confidence becomes built to the idea that you can do bigger and bigger things. And so committing to specific things is key. There's a lot to be said about that you can't always uncommit, obviously. I think that there's too much being said today about uncommitting. I think it's good to uncommit to the wrong things. The problem is, is if you set a goal and then at some point along the way, you hit some speed bump, which I would then call a trauma because <laughs> you internalize it. And then you say, 
this is probably the wrong goal. Is it really the wrong goal or are you just internalizing the pain of learning and now you're questioning your ability to do it and so you're going to pursue a smaller path? There's a really, really good quote in the book and it's from Robert Brault. Robert Brault said, we are kept from our goal, not by obstacles, but by a clear path to a lesser goal. And so the idea is, is if you hit a roadblock along the way and you internalize that and you don't keep going forward, and then you pursue a lesser path, what that speed bump then became was a trauma. It was a negative experience that you didn't just learn through and get help from. That's one of the reasons why actually in one of the prescriptions in the book about traumas is you need an empathetic witness. You need a support group. That's why people need coaching and stuff like that is because in the process of learning, you're going to hit bumps. You're going to hit caps. You're going to fall. That's why learning is an emotional experience. And if you hit those and you don't have what are called empathetic witnesses, people to support you through the ups and downs, you're going to hit some wall and it's going to stop you. It's going to become a trauma. You're going to stop imagining and creating the future. Your confidence is going to plummet and you're going to pursue something lesser that's easier. And so that's why you need support groups around you. There's the quote, you're as sick as your secrets. You know, trauma leads to addiction. And so you don't want to internalize it. You want support around you that you can share the ups and the downs with and you need good coaching and good people around you who can help you continue to be encouraged to keep taking courageous actions towards your future through the ups and the downs. So you need that. You need people, good people around you to support and encourage you as you go through the painful process of becoming your future self. Because if you have a big future self, going from where you are right now to becoming your future self is going to be a purging, crazy, not easy, painful process that is entirely possible, very exhilarating, and very enjoyable. Dr. Benjamin Hardy, you have just gave us so much amazing insights to chew on as we're listening to this. And what I love the most is the fact that, you know, the majority of the listeners and the fact that this podcast is superhumans at work. And in essence, everyone listening, I would hope that when you're listening to shows like this, you are striving to be the best version of yourself. You have a vision of what you want to become in the future. And what I love here is we've really broken down through a lot of validated psychological things that are going to happen and that are possible for us to go on that path and really understand what's to be expected. Because yes, I love that you're not apologizing for the fact that it is a tough journey. Dude, it's emotionally rigorous. It's emotional, painfully emotional to let go of the past, to face the past, to change the past, to deal with it, to also to pursue. It's hard as heck, mostly emotionally hard. I've been on a path of like, I've decided to kind of really take responsibility for a lot of my stuff. And I've seen what that path is like. It's crazy because it's a roller coaster. You're going up, down, but you're always going up and up and it's a progress, but there's waves through it. It's a more of an up down journey rather than trying to ride the middle. 100%. And so I love which everything you said. And for everybody listening, I want to recap this because we started off by telling you that we're going to look at what personality types can do or not do for you. And we've completely went beyond that because these personality tests, as much as they can make you feel good about what you've decided to stamp on what you feel that your personality becomes in the current environment and context that you're doing that test, it actually holds you back from actually using your imagination and having the courage to pursue the future vision that you want to become. And so do not find yourself get attached to those personality tests. Really focus more on looking into that future. 
I love that Ben here talked about how your past, your memories, they are flexible. Who you were 10 years ago is not the person you are today. And so you can look in awe and be embarrassed at the story you were before, but no, just appreciate the journey that you've been on and then start focusing your attention even more on what that person could be 10 years from now. If you spend so much more time pacing who you were going to become in the future, you'll always have that radar towards that big goal, setting a North Star about a big thing that would excite you. And it doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to feel right. And then in the journey of pursuing it, you're going to grow. You're going to discover yourself. You're going to change. And the fact is, you're more than likely going to notice the things that support you towards achieving the goals, as opposed to focus your mind on the things in your personality that confirm what you currently are. Letting go of who you are and what you are now is a big process of becoming who you want to be. And if you listen to this podcast, this episode particularly, I feel like you might need to listen a second time because you received so much insights. Listen, I'm like in shock. Usually I do a beautiful recap at the end of the episodes, but then I'm like, <laughs> I got to wow. get one more, one more crazy, one more crazy application for you. And that's narrative, identity narrative, because again, identity is so powerful. Whenever someone asks you, who are you? The general response is that people go straight to their past and they start explaining a narrative that they've developed. And by the way, that narrative is always developing. And you can be very conscious about that arc and how you explain yourself. This is a much more courageous and intentional way of explaining yourself as is where you're going. If you start to say, this is who I am, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I'm going to accomplish. So, so for me, for example, people ask me who I am, you know, I'm going to say I'm an author, but I'm I've got this book that I'm going to try to sell 10 million copies of. And you talk about your future. You talk about where you're going as a person. And that can be the story of yourself. Just as an example, many of us know that Elon Musk has a story. And his story is, is that he's going to die on Mars. Human travel has not yet made it to Mars. There's no evidence yet that we're going to get to Mars. But that's his story. That's his narrative. And that's shaping his process. And he would never go through that process if that wasn't his purpose. I mean, he sort of lets it out. But it's... I guarantee you, radically painful, all the things that he does, but it's also incredibly purposeful. When the why is strong enough, you figure out the how, you know what I mean? And so it's very beautiful to learn to change, to grow through something that's meaningful. But his story is in the future. And I think that it takes a lot more courage to be honest about what you want. Most people, they'll downplay or they'll cater their true goals to their environment and to kind of fitting in with their social group rather than to genuinely stating, this is what I want in my life. This is what I'm going for. This is who I am. This is what I want. And so for listeners out there, it would be far more courageous, but also far more honest for you to just tell people what you want. There's a quote from Dan Sullivan, and he said, surround yourself with people who remind you more of your future than your past. And so obviously social environment is enormous to your personality. That's one of the most strong findings is obviously that your environment in many ways is shaped by the social people you surround yourself with. That's obvious. But I challenge anyone listening to this conversation to start telling people about your goals. If you need a little time to conceptualize a future self and to conceptualize goals that would lead you to that future self, take that time. Spend that time in your journal, in reflection with good friends. Start to conceptualize this out with and become intentional towards living towards that. But then start telling people that that's who you are and that's what you're doing. And you may get some pushback and you have to become flexible enough to respect other people's opinions, but not let those opinions sway you. And then as you begin consistently moving towards that, people start to believe you, but it doesn't even matter <laughs> because you just need to believe yourself. And it's just powerful to then hear yourself say audibly what you're going to do. 
because as people, we have a strong need for consistency towards what we've said. And so if you start striving to be consistent towards your future self rather than consistent towards your former self, then your personality will evolve and change, but also you'll start to create the outcomes you want rather than the outcomes that you've formerly created. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining us on the show. This was an amazing episode filled with content. Spend the time, digest these ideas. You might be taking a deep breath at this point and realizing there's some stuff you need to do. And it's got to do a lot with your future and what you're going to declare and what you want to become is just around the corner. Pick up a copy of Personality Isn't Permanent. Break free from self-limiting belief and rewrite your story. Benjamin Hardy, his upcoming book is going to be amazing. I can't wait to read my copy. I suggest it for everybody else listening. There's a ton of insights that you're going to get even more than what you've heard today. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show and everybody listening. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everybody, Jason Campbell here, ready for our AMA segment of the show. And so the question I wanted to answer today comes from Carolina Ahumada, who actually went through my mini quest on productivity while working from home. If you haven't picked up this mini quest, it's a free thing that I've designed with Mindvalley, five days to really get rid of any kind of overwhelm and stress that you get from the daily tasks, emails, and overwhelm that can happen, and just managing yourself better when you're working from home. If you want to pick it up, it's mindvalley.com forward slash remote. That being said, Carolina was asking a question as a graduate from this program and a listener to this podcast saying, I'd like to know how we approach big projects that run for months. Okay. So Carolina, thanks for the question. In essence, for bigger projects, in my case, I have a kind of annual plan that I design on New Year's Eve. And what I do there is I actually set the purpose. And it was actually Brendan Burchard is that the problems is usually not about productivity. It's about purpose. I was listening to one of his talks and I thought that was a brilliant statement because if there's no purpose, what's the point of being productive? What are we being productive for? And so in this case, when we talk about a big project, the first thing you want to get clear on is the purpose. Like why is that big project important? I remember one big project that I often find myself struggling with doing. I've had it on my vision board, or at least on my three most important questions. If those of you who have went through the exercise at Mindvalley speaks about the three most important questions, if you just Google that, you'll find Vision's learnings on it. It's an amazing exercise to understand what kind of experiences you want in the world, the growth you want to have, and contribution you want to make. Anyways, one of the growth things that I wanted to make sure that I put out in the world is actually to write a book. I wanted to be able to write a book. And I had it on my board for at least five years. And it wasn't until... I actually went through a workshop with Scribe Writing. This is the company, if any of you are familiar with Tucker Max, he has been a guest on the Mind Valley podcast with Vishen Lakiani. Actually took us through an exercise to make us identify why it was important. And the why quickly came into the who. It was like, it's important for the impact, but who was I making this impact for? I got clear on the person that would be impacted by the book that I'm writing. I got clear on the impact and why this book needs to exist. And that became kind of the foundational fire that I needed to get excited about approaching big projects. So once I had that clear, then it was like, okay, it needs to be done. Figuring out how to do it was the easy part. Like there's tons of blog articles, there's tons of information I could read on. In this process, I actually purchased their product, which gives you a blueprint. I was like, yeah, it makes sense to get this blueprint. It makes sense to make that purchase because I know the impact that I'm going to have. I know the abundance that'll follow the impact and thus it makes it a worthwhile investment. So then I started making an annual plan. How do I get this done in a year? And if you go back, Carolina, to the Superhumans at Work episode I did with John Butcher, who speaks about breaking things down from an annual goal to a quarterly goal to a monthly goal, that's really how you go ahead and get big projects to be done. 
And so you can get into more specificity of what needs to be done next once you break it down to a shorter term, but you wanna make sure you're always having a big picture view that makes you realize why are you doing this small task. The problem I've seen some people do is if you keep optimizing yourself by clearing your emails, getting those tasks done, but it's not connected to a priority or a bigger why or a big project, then you're just spinning your wheels for the sake of being busy for being busy. I've had times where I'm like, yeah, I get the dopamine rush. I'm checking things off my boxes, but it's taking a break, stepping back, looking at what's the purpose behind why I'm doing these things to make sure they're connected to results that I want to see. And so those are a few ideas about approaching big projects. Now, I could give you some tips such as, oh yeah, you can use products like Trello. You can use projects like Asana, Monday.com. These are all technologies that can help you tackle big projects by having milestones and you know you can study project management on how to break those down further. But really, these are all things you can find a few Google searches away. The biggest thing you wanna know is if you're doing a big project, understand why it's so important for you. What's the purpose? Because once you have that, then figuring out the how is the easiest part. Because it's yes, you take the big thing, you set it as an annual goal, and then you can break it down on what needs to be done this quarter to get me towards being on track of doing this in one year. And if this is what needs to be done this quarter, then break it down into what needs to be done this month. And if that needs to be done this month, then how do you break it down for what is the priority this week? And then schedule time in the calendar to ensure that what you is your biggest priority is being done this week. I know for me, I just ran this exercise with a group of people at Mindbelly that I'm working towards being more productive. And I said, listen, if you break down your month into weekly big priorities, then you know what needs to be scheduled. It's not just gonna be the things coming at you, but you're being proactive. And that's how you shift into getting these big projects, which are rarely urgent to do, but always important. And you need to consciously schedule them in. So in my case right now, I know I wanted to do a lot of process documentation around how I do deals with authors on the back end here at Mindvalley, which is one of the roles that I hold. And I'm saying, okay, what needs to be done this week for me to be able to reach out and do a lot of initiatives with all the authors? The first thing is documentation. So right after this recording, I'm going back to my laptop and I'm going to start documenting the process so I know where I can automate, where I can delegate, and where I can delete, ensuring that I'm knowing where this process is going to flow. It's well documented. And then I can move to next week's priority, which is going to be to reach out to the people. And this leads to the month where I'm actually going to have all these integrate towards bringing more success to our authors, enabling their messages to be spread to more masses, etc. So I want to give a big thanks to Carolina for asking the question, how do we approach big projects that runs for a month? In essence, you make sure that you have a clear purpose as to why it's important. Start with an annual growth, break it down to quarterly, monthly, weekly, and then make sure that what you are doing are things that are moving the needle towards that bigger project. All the tools that you need, all the how can be figured out after the purpose is the biggest thing. Thanks again for listening. If you have questions, make sure you send an email to jason at mindvalley.com and make sure you give me a subject line that says question for podcast. That way I'll know exactly where your question is and I can prioritize it accordingly. Take care, everyone, and stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mindvalley podcast.